learn. So ladies and gentlemen, please clap your hands for Laura Caesar. Thank you. I like skeptics, so bring me all your red thumbs. So my name is Laura Ciceri. I am the founder of Supply Chain Insights, and I'm an industry analyst. I'm not a consultant, and I really don't know what Industry 4.0 is, because I don't think we've defined it very well, but what I said is, let's look out to Supply Chain 2030, and let's reflect back on where we've been, history, to learn from the past, to unlearn, to rethink the future. So let's go back. Supply chain management, looking at source, make, and deliver together, was first defined in 1982. In those days, I ran factories much like this. We didn't have a supply chain organization. I really fought to get a supply chain organization to implement supply chain planning. I implemented some of the first warehouse management and enterprise resource planning solutions. I've worked for 17 years for industry analyst firms, Gartner, AMR Research, and now my own, and we spent 1.7% of revenue on IT. And I believe that we had made dramatic improvements in customer service, inventory, cost, and growth. And I wanted to write my first book to really have a celebratory moment on 30 years of supply chain management. But when I printed the balance sheets of all the companies that I'd worked for, I couldn't find the success. I could not find a company, no matter what industry, that had really driven a balanced scorecard for growth, operating margin, inventory turns, return on invested capital, and customer service. So I said to myself, how can we say we have best practices if we're not driving the balance sheet? What I find is that we're improving functional silos, transportation, manufacturing, procurement, and we're very eager to chase labor, to outsource things, but managing the balance sheet, I think, is still an opportunity. So I'm Laura Ciceri. I'm not a consultant. I'm a researcher, and what's the difference? A consultant knows the answer. They come to your offices, they've got a great PowerPoint, they want to tell you the answer. I'm trying to help you with the questions to ask, and I do quantitative research. I'm now followed by 295,000 people on LinkedIn. If you're part of my group, thank you very much. I do share groups on network of networks, looking at blockchain, scalability, definition of nodes, demand planning, cognitive computing, because I don't think we know what the future looks like. But what I do know are that the traditional practices that got us here are not driving the results that people want. Now, I worked as an industry analyst for Gartner. I left Gartner because I didn't believe Gartner cared as much about supply chain as I did. I went to work for a company called AMR Research. I worked with about 1,500 companies there. Gartner sold AMR, and I said, I'll start my own firm. So I'm a research gal. I sit on 9,000 quantitative responses. I'll do 15 quantitative surveys this year, 15 years of financial data, and I'm constantly triangulating the market to try to tell the truth for business leaders. And you'll find I'm very direct. I'm opinionated. You've got to love me for being opinionated. 
and I tell it like it is. So let's get on with it. 2012, I tried to write this book which was going to celebrate supply chain success. And I believe that I would find in balance sheets a pattern where we had taken IT and invested it and improved inventory turns and operating margin. But not the case. 95% of companies are stuck. And if we think about the third industrial revolution, I think there's a lot we can learn for whatever we're going to define as the fourth industrial revolution. So I graduated in 1970, I'm an old gal. My first manufacturing job was in 1975. Still have the bunions on my shoes from the safety shoes. And at that point in time, we didn't have computers on our desk. We didn't have mobile phones. We had inter-office mail, we had telexes. It was a very different world. And we believed that we could take mobile phones and we could take computers and we would dramatically improve the back office. We didn't have things like email, we had typing pools. But look at the fact that labor productivity globally and improvement stopped in 2004 before the recession. Why is that? I think it's because we escalated the use of technology in our personal lives. Tomorrow when I take off from Brussels, I'll order groceries to be delivered in my apartment in Philadelphia. I'll have guaranteed delivery. I can do that on takeoff. But can we have similar kind of operations in our work environments? We still struggle with systems. 68% of planning is done on Excel spreadsheets. I don't care how good you are at an Excel spreadsheet, you'll never model a complex nonlinear system like the supply chain on a spreadsheet. I think it's because we were too close-minded, because we weren't willing to change. And I'm going to challenge you to learn from the past, to unlearn, to rethink the future. Now, we're surrounded by market drivers. Every day I read the Wall Street Journal and I see headlines like this. And no company adapts well to market drivers. In companies, good news travels fast, bad news travels slowly, and often the supply chain is the bearer of bad news, right? So let's take these headlines. There was a hurricane or an escalating price or the downturn in particular buying of cars. None of these companies adapted well. Coming out of the recession, General Mills and Kellogg's did not read that people were walking away from big food and cereal downturn. So they said on point-of-sale data, did not use it. Ford did not read the shift to SUVs, shutting down factories. Puerto Rico, Hurricane Maria, 33% of pharmaceuticals and medical devices for North America are manufactured in Puerto Rico. People never thought we'd have a hurricane in Puerto Rico. Suddenly hospitals aren't getting goods, right? We're not market-driven. We're inside out. We're not outside in. 90% of companies don't know where their third-tier suppliers are. 80% don't know where their second-tier suppliers are. When the horrible issues happened in Japan, Intel just really said, let's go help our suppliers, sent nine people to Japan, brought their factories up. Ford, three weeks later, found out they didn't have a bolt, shut down their manufacturing lines. We're not market-driven. How can we really manage our supply chains if we're not outside in? Now, in the 2007 recession, one of the things I studied was 
How long did it take for a company to sense the downturn in the market and adapt their supply chain? You can see that almost half were laggards, took six months to sense the downturn and change their supply chain. At that point in time, I worked for AMR Research. I was invited to a number of companies to talk about, is the market a W or a U or a V? I'm like, why are you asking me? I sat on the back row of my economics classes at business school. Why are you not using market data? Orders are not a good indicator of demand. In the last three decades, order latency has increased threefold. What is order latency? It's the time from consumption to the bringing of an order to the doorstep of a manufacturer. We run our supply chains on orders. Orders are a bad indicator of demand. We're not willing to let go of the past to use market signals, whether it's point-of-sale data and consumer or hospital data in medical devices or whether it's car consumption data in automotive. As we think about outside-in, we must abandon our current processes. And we're surrounded by wonderful new forms of data that don't fit in relational databases very well. Unstructured data, customer sentiment data, warranty data, quality data, streaming data, GPS data. All of this data does not fit into relational databases. What happens is our current systems are based on relational databases. It is the basis of ERP, it's the basis of supply chain planning. So how do you stuff this new data into your current systems? You don't. We are sitting on legacy systems that must have to be redesigned. But along with that, we must unlearn our processes today, which are very focused on functional silos. We have made our functions very efficient and not effective. So as we think about what we've done is we've built manufacturing processes, we've built transportation processes, we've built procurement processes, we've built customer service processes, and these don't work very well together. So people say to me, I'm going to build an end-to-end -end supply chain. I say, okay, what is an end and what is an end and why don't you go draw it? Typically, they'll start with their supplier. And I'll let them go. And then they'll draw procurement, and I'll let them go. And then they'll draw lots of factories. Okay, lots of shipments. Okay. And then you know what they'll draw? Their customer. We cannot be successful if we don't start customer first. We cannot be successful unless we can translate sense and orchestrate the demand signal. We can't be successful unless we can build value networks. We have invested all of our funds on making these functional silos efficient but not effective. I left Gartner when Gartner published the ERP2 technology guide. I don't know if you remember that, but the concept was that we were going to build ERP systems, we were going to be planning on top of them, and guess what? Magic would happen. Guess what? It didn't. What happened in the last 15 years is inventories have grown, costs have escalated, and we're not very flexible. And so as we think about today's supply chain, only a third of companies think it works well. This is from my research. 
quantitative research, we ask, how would you describe your supply chain? Is it proactive? Is it reactive? Does it work well? This is the current state. Only a third believe it works well. And what people really want is they want alignment. They want agility. They want proactivity. And let me tell you, you don't get there with today's systems. You don't get there with today's processes. You don't get there with today's functional metrics. It requires a balanced scorecard, starting with the customer's customer, designing the supply chain from the outside in, and adapting to new forms of technology that can use all forms of data, streaming data, unstructured data, and translation of that data into outcomes. Now, why is this important? We are the builders of the global economy. If you look at today versus the next five years, supplier viability has never been a bigger risk. What do I mean by supplier viability? It's the ability for a supplier to be successful and give you reliable supply. Well, we've talked collaboration for many, many years at every supply chain conference I go to. In fact, sometimes I sit in the back of the room and I just put a little tick mark by the number of times that we say we're going to collaborate. We really have not collaborated. What we have done is we've increased the cost and pushed waste back in the supply chain, suffocating our suppliers to death. We've elongated payables. We couldn't improve inventory, so we elongated payables to improve cash to cash. We are starving our suppliers, and it's a risk to our supply chain. Demand viability and variability has also increased. If you look at mean absolute percent error, or you look at forecast value added of forecast demand management, most people will find that error has doubled or tripled in the last decade. But yet our processes are the same. So why are we going to sleep at night and not worrying about these things? Why are we not adapting to be outside in? In spite of unprecedented commodity increases, you know, whether it's oil or sugar or paper, our commodity markets are very, very volatile, and our supplier viability is an issue. Let's look at inventory. Man, I had a CFO tell me the other day, if I had half the money I had spent on reducing inventory, I'd be a rich man. Look at these inventory levels pre and post recession. Can you feel good about that in any industry? I don't think so. Automotive may have made slight improvement. But what they did was they pushed the cost down to their second, third tier suppliers, killing them. We're not building value networks. We're not looking at the form and function of inventory. We're not looking at supply chain planning master data. We are not managing outside the functional silos. What's happened in the last decade is demand has increased, we've gotten the long tail. We've got more and more products on the long tail, and the supply chain planning systems that we designed in the 1990s were for the blue area of this graph. Things that were very high volume, that had a normal distribution. If you remember statistics, bell-shaped normal distribution. The red tail, the long tail, where many people are trying to drive growth, their traditional systems, whether it's SAP, APO, or Manugistics that I helped to develop, 
or I2 or JDA or Legility cannot really manage this long tail very well. And I encourage you to backcast and test it, but it's a problem. Now, as people think about this and they look at the long tail, more and more products are going into the long tail and you might say, well, let's just get rid of those products. That's not so easy because many of those are our growth items. They're our new products. They're the special requests for suppliers. And so many of my clients have long tails and the tail whips us around. Inventory grows, demand volatility grows, we pass our costs to our suppliers, and I want you to join me to build a guiding coalition of change. We shouldn't be proud of where we're at. We need to drive a digital transformation. Now, the market is very guilty right now of what I call digital whitewashing. You know, if people have a technology, they just put the word digital in front of it and suddenly it's all new. No, not so, right? I define a digital transformation as rethinking the electrons and the atoms of the supply chain to drive new outcomes. Should we ship a product? I remember I used to buy records and cassette tapes. Now we have MP3 files. Should Ford be building cars or selling rides? Should they be building new models to sell rides? Kodak had the first patent on digital images, but couldn't kill the film business, so they didn't really bring digital to life. Should we be focused on efficient sickness in hospitals, where we check people in and out of hospitals and we really look at bed utilization, or should we be focused on wellness? You know, recently I took all my wearables to my physician and wanted to have a meaningful discussion about wellness. We're not able to really design supply chain outcomes for wellness. Should an agricultural company sell seeds and additives or should they sell crop yield? So as we think about this and we think about outcomes, the atoms of the supply chain, whether we're talking about 3D printing or whether we're thinking about fermentation or algae or the reuse of recyclables, what should be the atoms of the supply chain for new outcomes? And we think about the electrons of the supply chain. I'm very excited about open source analytics because now I can use non-structured streaming data, all kinds of data, and a much more cost-effective, scalable means. Open source analytics were developed by the e-commerce vendors like Amazon and eBay when they couldn't get the relational databases to scale. So I'm very excited about Apache Spark, I'm very excited about Kafka, I'm very excited about Hadoop. And you should know all those terms and build your analytics teams to do it. When people talk to me about HANA, I'm saying columnar store, why are we excited about that, right? Now, as we think about all of the combinations of streaming data, Outside in, whether it's Internet of Things, sensors, RFID, streaming data comes to our doorstep every day, but we can't really use it because it doesn't fit in our current systems very well. 3D printing, should we print? You know, one of the things I'm working with hospitals is should we manufacture and print medical devices in hospitals, and what will they look like? Should we print hearts? and change our whole organ transplant process? 
You know, today if you're going to get a knee or a hip, a salesperson for a medical device company usually comes to a hospital with three or four in the trunk, comes into the hospital, they don't know what they're going to put in the body. We have issues with recall. Could we print in the hospital and have a hip or a knee to fit that patient, have coding, and sense how well that's working in the body? Robotics. I love what's happening with software robotics. I love what's happening with manufacturing robotics to basically improve the workplace and decrease wear and tear on the body. Wearables, mobility, should we have paper? Cognitive computing, we really need to be building rules-based ontologies to change allocation and, and inventory matching and ATP because today's rules are too simple. They're single ifs to single thens, and they don't allow adaptation. So I believe it's not one technology, but it's the coalescence of technologies, and we need to focus on outcomes and how we can drive the new economy. So people will say to me, well, Laura, digital transformation's so far out there. Can I just start with digitization? And I'm like, you can, but I think it's a waste of time. So digitization says I'm going to take my current processes and I'm going to make them more efficient. I'm going to get rid of paper, I'm going to make them more touch, more reliable. Digitalization says I'm going to make the next step of improvement to improve workflow. What I find is often when people try to drive a digital transformation, and they start at the digitization level, there's such an opportunity cost because IT says, well, this is a good reason for us to do this next ERP upgrade, or this is the reason for me to roll out this next planning system. And it's such an opportunity cost for the company. And I believe you've got to start with the digital transformation and focus on outcomes. What can you do with new technologies that improve the customer experience? What can you do that can drive brand differentiation? FedEx delivered letters, but the brand FedEx is based upon guaranteed delivery. Is guaranteed delivery an appropriate outcome? We're not good at an ETA. We're not good at being able to know where our trucks are. I believe we're ready for a digital transformation. And to do this, we must cast off traditional thinking. The focus on inside-out processes, a focus on the four walls of the company, a focus on efficient organizational silos, the ability to think beyond batch processes and ERP, to think about data at the speed of business, to be outside in, to think about open source analytics, autonomous and localized processes. It's, it's a new world. And there are four technology areas that really excite me that I want to be sure that you get a chance to talk to people here and get a good understanding. The first is the concept of moving from relational databases where I stuff everything in rows and columns to new forms of databases where I can use unstructured and structured data together, I can build data lakes, and I can move to schema on read. Schema on read says that I am going to read that data as I need it, so I no longer have to have fixed schema. I no longer need to have 
fixed schema and forecast or customers, but I can read that as I need it. So non-relational databases, schema and read, and the movement from descriptive analytics and predictive analytics to cognitive analytics. I remember when I first learned to drive, I would print a map and I would have it sitting in the passenger seat when I needed to go somewhere. And I'd read it, you know, pull off the road. And then I had a little TomTom -tom device that I put on my steering column. And then the cars came with maps, and now my phone has a map. But not only does my phone have a map, but it has prescriptive analytics, so if I drive down the road and there's an emergency down the road, it tells me what to do. The supply chain needs that kind of logic. When people come in in the morning, instead of looking at exceptions and trying to figure out what exceptions mean, the ability to have prescriptive analytics would allow me to come in and say, good morning, how'd we do last night? Well, the container in Singapore got held up and we need to move the container in Japan ahead. Already made the arrangements, the docking, and you need to go do this, right? So it's the ability to have not only the exception, but what to do about it. And then our user interface becomes much more voice activated. Four things I think I'm excited about. But you know what I see worldwide, because I speak worldwide? <laughs> is supply chain leaders are a lot like penguins. You ever study penguins? They sit on the ice and they all watch. And the first penguin that jumps, they want to see if he gets eaten by the seal, right? And then if he doesn't get eaten, then the rest of the penguins decide that they'll jump. The question that most people say is, Laura, I want to be an innovator. I want to find out about all these new technologies. I want to build a digital transformation strategy. Great, let's do it. And then they'll say, well, what is the return on investment for this digital st strategy? We don't know. We need to test and learn to unlearn. Ooh, I'm not sure I can do that, right? That's too big of a risk. Who else has done it? You're not an innovator if you want somebody else that has already paved the path. We need more penguins to jump. We need more use cases. We need to challenge the status quo. Because I find most people are afraid to jump. When I was at AMR Research, we had a bell curve. We had just as many innovators as we had late adopters. Look what's happening. We're becoming more and more conservative. And I would argue that Europe is more conservative than North America. If you want to find the biggest adoption of technology, go to Japan and China. China's investing in more robots. If you want to find out the redefinition of e-commerce, look at what's happening in Japan. Conservative thinking holds us back because all of these technologies, cognitive computing, machine learning, blockchain, wearables, are being tested by the early adopters. The late adopters are looking at cloud and concurrent planning, and they're taking incremental steps. But I argue, is there too big of an opportunity cost? So let's start on the journey. Let's start to rethink some of our current practices. Let's start with planning. I believe that the beauty of planning comes from clean data. To go through an engine, where it's, whether it's warehouse management, or production scheduling, or transportation management, or demand management, or strategic planning, to give us better outcomes. 
However, we don't have very good planning master data. We assume a cycle is a cycle, a lead time is a lead time, a scrap rate is a scrap rate, a run time is a run time. We don't look at variability. You know, the unloading time in Long Beach is a fixed number, despite the fact it's very variable. And one of the things that the Blue Crew's work is doing on the simulation modeling that they call digital twin is redefining the planning master data level, taking the transactions, looking at variability, being able to plot what is a feasible outcome based upon what's really happening in our planning master data. Most people do not have good planning master data. We do not put good data into our engines. So as we think about the current state, where we have traditional optimization, and then we have an output, I want you to think about machine learning on this master data to clean it up so that we're no longer doing manual master data, cognitive computing with rules-based ontologies that allow us to drive the planning engines, and outputs that continually sense, learn, and act. Today, our supply chain planning systems don't learn. The current state is pretty complex. We have a lot of ERP, we have a lot of APS. These systems don't talk to each other very well. Only 20% of people consciously design the supply chain. I graduated from engineering school. I could not get out of engineering school without the ability to design a heat exchanger, a distillation column, and a pump. I've never done that in real life. But the design of the supply chain, the ability to look at form and function of inventory, push-pull decoupling points, the role of a supplier, and actually guiding the planning engines for design is something most companies don't do. And business leaders struggle to get to data. You know, if we look at the ability to get to data, only 42% of companies believe they're effective in getting to data. It's because we lock the data into these systems, and these systems operate in islands, and we really focus on functions. And yes, 68% of planning is done by Excel. Excel becomes the new ghetto, right? The planning ghettos we've created. And the risk is that you can take cloud-based analytics like Anaplan and create new ghettos, right? So we must be able to connect the planning systems together and have good engines. Today, data accessibility is a problem. People can't get to data. And people say to me, well, Laura, how do I know I have a good plan? Well, you start with a balanced scorecard. Growth, cost, customer service, inventory, return on invested capital. Get out of your functional metrics. Then measure demand latency. How long does it take? to translate what's happening at the customer to an order. Look at forecastability. How easy is it for you to forecast? What is reasonable in terms of error? Forecast value add. What are you adding in terms of value in your forecasting processes? Measure this along with error and bias. Customer service on time and full. Tactical plan feasibility. Was it a tactical plan with SNOP or IBP, whatever you want to call it, to translate into manufacturing reliability? Were you able to drive manufacturing adherence? 
And when your transportation loads were tendered to the plan, were they taken by the preferred transportation provider? We need production planning effectiveness dashboards that allow us to do this by division, by manufacturing site, to be able to look at what is the value of planning. And we need to build networks, demand networks, supply networks, logistics networks, so we can be outside in. And in the core of this green, we're going to have supply chain planning engines. And then we'll have cloud-based solutions like Anaplan and Oracle and SAP are building that connect the planning engines into the greater organization. And our engines are in these boxes, starting with strategic planning to tactical planning to operational planning to executional planning. I do not believe these planning layers disappear in the global economy because I think they are really needed for workflow maybe in the regional world. So when people like Canaxis tell me we're going to collapse these boxes, I'm like, I don't believe so. But this concentrated planning fits within these core planners. So if I go to a company like Procter & Gamble, I've got 660 planners, and I've got 25,000 people in the back office that can now connect to the larger organization for things like collaborative workflow, what-if analysis, and the ability to look at feasibility of plans. Today, most of the back office cannot get to planning data, and it can connect to networks. So I believe that our current selection criteria for planning, when we look at the nine factors, we do this wrong. I believe the most important factor is the modeling. Can this engine give us the best result? And what most people buy is based upon IT standardization and integration. And as a result, we are not getting the value out of planning. We are using Excel spreadsheet. And I encourage you to adopt a scorecard for planning. But let's talk about these new forms of analytics. So it's just not happening in planning. We need analytics that help us with clouds, the things that should move in clouds in a federated way, and pools, and data pools, and in streams. And these analytics architectures need to fit in between our traditional alphabet soup applications. And what do I mean by alphabet soup? APS, ERP, WMS. It's all alphabet soup, right? If we can't put an acronym on it, we just don't believe we got a good thing. And these new form of analytics that we push, which are clouds and streams, to be able to use some of the new forms of analytics, the schema on read, the new forms of databases, the new forms of data, to really be able to inform, to drive to workforce productivity. And as we climb to prescriptive and cognitive analytics, we're just like my driving down the road example where I get prescriptive analytics about what to do, I'm able to evolve an ontology. And this is an example of an ontology. Imagine for a network, you had a series of beliefs, rules. And each of the rules at the intersections had multiple ifs to multiple thens that allowed you to make judgments based upon prescriptive and cognitive analytics. 
Maybe it's substitution logic for a customer. Maybe it's preferential inventory matching based upon rules. Perhaps it's material substitution based upon cost. Perhaps it's risk mitigation. But imagine that you had this ontology that can overlay all of your engines and all of your applications. And at each of these intersections, you have a form of prescriptive or cognitive analytics. And these prescriptive and cognitive analytics since learn and act together. I think we're 10 years away from this. But we can only get there by really appreciating the fact that today's systems don't work very well. They don't work for localized assortment. This is an example of a sinus product that really needs to be very localized based upon what's happening in the market. When the company was able to drive outside-in processes, they drove growth 7% because they were always out of stock. This is an example of unstructured text mining to be able to look at sentiment. This is a listening post for Lenovo. Most advanced companies implement listening posts, whether it's warranty, quality, or customer data, to be able to listen to what the customers have to say. Sadly, in today's organizations, our marketing departments know how to yell the message, but we don't know how to listen. We don't know how to listen to the customer, and we don't know how to use unstructured data. And we don't know how to go about the use of unstructured data, but non-relational architectures allow us to bring unstructured data to answer the question about quality, warranty, or customer sentiment. Kellogg's, a cereal company, had a horrible issue with smelly liners in their cereal. They would have never thought to ask the question, do the liners stink? They assumed that the suppliers always gave them quality liners for their cereal boxes. If they had been listening to Twitter, they would have learned within a week that they had a supplier issue and they needed action. Six weeks later, because they went through the normal processes of customers calling customer service and they had to get enough mass so that they could see it was a problem, were they able to track back the issue to be able to begin the issue of recall? Our ability to listen and then respond is an opportunity for most companies. We've got some feet. <laughs> Let's talk about time. Streaming data. When people say to me real-time data, I'm like, we really shouldn't have a conversation about real-time data. I want to talk about streaming data. I want to talk about weather data. I want to talk about GPS data. I want to talk about Internet of Things data. Streaming data doesn't fit in these architectures either. So let's take some case studies. Let's talk about outcomes. There was a company called Linux International that I worked with that makes heating, ventilation, and air conditioning units. And the supply chain group said, you know, I'm always failing. You know, the hottest day of the year, I never have the right parts. First day it's hot, first day that it snows, I never have the right parts. And I'm never successful on repair and maintenance. And they were looking at the United States far too simply and the pink and blue map. And they said, let's look at microclimates. Let's look at real weather and microclimates. Instead of having the customer call us for maintenance, what if we put a sensor in the heating, air conditioning, and ventilation system that tells us when that unit has a problem based upon microclimates? 
And instead of sourcing spare parts, what if we print the spare parts that we can locally, and let's change our model. So they redefined, they put the sensors and the heating air conditioning units, and they redefined service. They started in California, where they would call the customers and they would say, you know, we're sensing that you've got an issue with a bearing, we're sensing you've got an issue with a filter. At your convenience, we would like to come out and fix the equipment. It's a totally different maintenance system, right? When I was working with Linux International, I live in an apartment in Philadelphia, and my washer and dryer broke, and nothing's worse than when you've had three weeks of laundry on the floor and your washer and dryer breaks, right? I called Sears, a large retailer in the US, and I said, please come and fish my, fix my washer and dryer. And they said, well, we can come in two weeks. So I scheduled the delivery. And guess what? They couldn't make it that day because the repairman was ill. But I also had a sub-zero refrigerator. The same day, Sub-Zero called me and said, you've got a problem with the compressor in your Sub-Zero. We'd like to come see you. And I'm like, great, come. The repairman put down this wonderful carpet. He talked to me about my Sub-Zero, talked to me about how he sensed that there were problems. I was really unhappy with Sears and a strong supporter of Sub-Zero. Maintenance is going to be redefined for new outcomes. Let's talk about these machines, right? I remember talking to Ariel Finnan, Ariel was chief operating officer about Coca-Cola, when he rolled out these units. I said, Ariel, you can either look at these as a method of deploying Coca-Cola, or you can look at it as an extension to the consumer. Every time people push different buttons, it gives you the ability to sense customer preferences. Every time you fill a cup, at McDonald's or any other dispensary, you can drive automatic replenishment if you assume that you don't need an order and you assume that you can drive replenishment. Coca-Cola did not do that. Their first movement was only to fill a cup. But Costa Coffee said, let's redefine the supply chain for outcomes to sense customer preferences, and every time somebody gets a cup of Costa Coffee, let's drive a signal, let's use these machines to drive automatic replenishment. And they did just that. Streaming data, Internet of Things. L'Oreal uses streaming data at the shelf to interface with consumers. Well, I have an allergy to this product. What blush should go with this lipstick? Is this right for my complexion? So consumers can automatically connect with the products. Think about all the containers on the water and the ability to connect with AIS devices to know unloading times. Today we do not have good ETAs, and what we do is we buffer because we don't know when the load will get there. 20% of our trucks move empty, 5 to 6% increase in logistics costs in Europe, 21% in North America. We're very short on drivers, but yet we are not focused on ETA, and less than 20% of people can use telematic signals. And why? Because they don't fit in our current architectures. So as we think about improving on-time delivery, we also have to think about improving manufacturing through the combination of welcome. Hi. 
We'll let you see if you're going to be a green thumb or a red thumb here in a minute. <laughs> Additive manufacturing, which is 3D printing, paperless products, wearables, the ability to see through glasses, robotics. On my website, I have a case study of Agco. Agco redesigned manufacturing for digital outcomes. They started because they had an issue with the fact that they had pads that people climbed on heavy equipment like combines and the pads were always breaking. So they implemented streaming data devices for their screwdrivers and their tools on the production lines, wearable glasses that allowed them to be paperless, and they reinvented digital manufacturing. L'Oreal with 3D printing in line, prints lipstick cases, perfume cases online without having to go to traditional manufacturing. So if we can redesign planning, and we can redesign transportation, and we can redesign manufacturing, we also need to be thinking about visibility. People will say to me, I need better visibility, and I'm like, well, how do you define visibility? A lot of times it's like fuzz in people's teeth, you know, it doesn't really have a good definition or cloud around this guy's eyes. If we look at the current state and we look at can people see what they need to see to do their jobs versus what they need to see to do their jobs, we have only really defined manufacturing. The biggest areas are in the area of customers, of logistics, of contract manufacturing, and I find it very ironic that we've outsourced more and more of our operations without the ability to see. And our maturity on traditional systems to be able to move things seamlessly is a great issue, but yet we invest in enterprise operations. We only have 22 to 28% of orders and purchase orders that can move hands-free. So I talked about that 95% of companies were stuck and 5% of companies are making improvement on the balance sheet. What are the five things that make a difference? One is the executive team understanding of supply chain. I define supply chain as the process that goes from the customer's customer to supplier's supplier. Most organizations wrongfully assign supply chain to logistics or customer service, very narrow functions. I believe we've got to look at outcomes. I believe we've got to look at supply chain visibility and really have the ability to get to the data that we need. Manage organizational change to be able to drive digital transformation. And I'm studying which forms actually work the best. InBev decided that they couldn't really redesign for craft beer without creating a new company, and so they invested in a spinoff. Corning decided that they needed to have a digital overlay team. Snyder Electric said, I'm going to have scuba teams that are really cross-functional groups that can go deep on the topic. Cross-functional alignment, the more aligned the functions are, the better people can actually drive change and the ability to access data. So let me ask you, with your green and your red thumbs, are you going to be like a penguin? Are you going to take the jump? Have I convinced you it's time to change?
let's see, a green thumb if you're going to jump, and a red thumb if you're going to be on the ledge. All right, can you take a picture of this? We got a lot of penguins that are going to jump, but with this area, we got a lot of red. We're going to come back and we're going to find out about this area. Okay. There is a bias in the audience. Yeah, can you redo it once? Because I, I wasn't doing it yet. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So these are really young men, right? You know, <laughs> the women are all jumping. So you guys with the red thumbs, why are you not jumping? Okay, you need more knowledge. Okay, what an opportunity or a great place. Another red thumb, why are you not jumping? Yes, like... Uh-huh. Okay, so you're going to be out testing the market looking for other penguins to jump. I think that's an okay answer. Another red thumb. Just don't be so long that the iceberg melts, okay? You know, because there are an awful lot of companies, you know, that don't make the digital transformation. Other red thumbs. Enjoy the conference. I'll be here the rest of the afternoon. I don't know if anybody has any questions for me. We have five minutes. Questions? I think not. So I encourage you to, oh, we got a question, good. It's a great question. I'm going to repeat your question. <clears throat> In my experience, why do people not jump? Number one, fear of their jobs. You know, we've grown up in functional organizations. When I was hired by Procter & Gamble, I moved through a manufacturing organization, and I wanted to be the best plant manager, and that was my career. For me to question the functional metrics of manufacturing would have been unheard of back in those days, right? So that's number one, fear. Number two is this world of technology that is starting to unveil is scary. All these new terms, you know, this crazy gal is talking about ontologies and unstructured data and sentiment mining. Wow, I don't even know where to start. It's two. Number three, We've got an awful lot of people getting really rich off of yesterday's technologies. Consultants, current technology companies, and they don't want anybody to move their cheese. Number four, we don't hold ourselves accountable to balance sheets. Number five, we don't have great leadership. And the companies that are making the most progress, they've got an enlightened leader who believes that supply chain can drive new outcomes, can really drive new business models, that believes it's a powerful engine for growth. We don't have enough of those kind of people. And so what I try to do in all of my share groups is build a guiding coalition that we can overcome these five factors. That's my belief. 
I'd love to talk to you over coffee or wine about yours. Another question, yes. Uh huh. And, uh, failing and the ones coming behind, the first ones behind, that they are successful. Uh, like also with the electric cars now, and they say, okay, he's the first jumper. But yeah, there's Mercedes, BMW coming up, and will they take the market? So there's some examples in the, in the past. There's a risk of new business models failing. There's also a risk that they'll succeed, right? Apple created a whole new industry for us. Um, you know, Lyft and Uber created a new industry for us. But both are out there. But I gotta tell you, most traditional models are gonna fail than the new jumpers that are gonna try to test the water. I worry when I go into companies that their brands won't be there in 2030, right? And I watch mergers and acquisitions. Think about all of the spin-offs of DuPont. And I say to myself, why could DuPont not make those companies successful? Or look at the walking away from big food and all of these startups. Or why was Dollar Shave Club bought versus really built? I think that we need to get over the ability to have be those first jumpers. So I think there's tension both ways. One more question. No more questions. Yes. I think they start with a big problem. I think they start with their customers and what do their customers care about. So I encourage them to not look at things like net promoter scores, but to really understand what does their brand mean to their customer today and in the future. So I work with a large chemical company and I say, what does your customer care about? Well, it's quality products, on time and full, safe and secure. How good is your supply chain at guaranteed delivery? Not so good. Well, maybe you start there with your most important customer and you give them guaranteed delivery. Maybe you start with something around safe and secure. Maybe you start with a new molecule. I don't know what your customers care about, but you need to start there. Yeah, thank you. My name's Laura. I'm not a consultant. I'm a researcher. Consultants know the answers and I'm trying to help people with questions. Thank you very much. Thank you.